0: Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. We hope you find this message helpful. And at the same time, it is important to us that you know podcasts should not be a substitute for the flesh and blood people of the church. Church is more than sermons. If you aren't a part of a local church, we would love to help you find one in your area. Please don't hesitate to email us at sermons at com. That's sermons at borocitychurch.com. We would be happy to help. Thank you for listening. Good morning. My name is Joel. I'm one of your pastors here at City Church. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving. I hope that you had a few good days of break with friends and family, some yummy food, now some yummy leftovers. Um, For those of you that don't know me very well, I live in a house full of princesses. And these princesses have seen all of the princess movies multiple times. That's the life that I, I live now. It's not one that I expected. It's not one that I asked for. But by God's grace, it's what I got. And I have learned to love this life that God has given me with all of these princesses. But there's probably not a single princess movie that we haven't seen. I remember when Lindley was real little, uh, when we went on road trips, we, we got frozen for her to watch in the back of the car on a screen in the back of the car. And that movie would just live on repeat in the back. And we watched it so many times that as the driver, someone that wasn't watching it, I would memorize all of the dialogue and all the lyrics to all the songs before I was able to watch the movie for myself. I'd already had it memorized. And it was a a super weird experience for me to watch the movie on an actual screen for the first time, already knowing all of the lyrics and all of the dialogue. Some of the parts were very similar to what I had envisioned in my mind, Um, but some were much different. I think the end was the most surprising to me. Um, Just hearing the audio all of those times didn't give me a full picture for how the act of true love scene would actually happen. Remember, the only kind of love that can melt a frozen heart. Do you remember that? And so watching it for the first time just hit differently. Remember how it went when all seemed to be hopeless because the good guy turned out to be the bad guy. Anna, the devoted sister of Queen Elsa, sacrificed her life to save Elsa. And then Anna freezes. But that was the act of true love, the only kind of love that can melt Anna's now frozen heart. Watching it for the first time was was just stunning. An incredible picture of self-sacrifice, and of course, Arendelle was saved, and the two princess or the two sisters reunite, and then Olaf gets his magic snow cloud, and they all lived happily ever after. Good, Um, and there's some version of this in every princess movie. There's pain inflicted by the villain, and when it looks like the villain is going to win, there's a hero that shows up. And an act of self-sacrifice that happens that saves the day. But you really never had a doubt that there would be a happily ever after, right? You never lost hope because because that's just how fairy tales go. See, all great stories and fairy tales throughout history and every culture tells these kinds of redemptive stories. Stories of epic adventure and drama, sorrow and loss, redemption and reconciliation, of grace and justice a tale of a prince who would come and rescue his bride from the clutches of a fierce dragon, right? And we all gravitate towards these kinds of stories because that's what the human heart wants. We all want and are born with a need for a happily ever after. And we all want to attach our stories, similar to most of the children movies, to unending joy and happiness. But The dilemma is that as we grow up and become fourth through sixth graders, my district 46 ers in here, and then then teenagers and then on into adulthood, we begin to confront the problems of the world. And it's very difficult to end up responding to life's circumstances and suffering and pain with anything other than cynicism and resentment and bitterness. We have a dilemma that most three-year-old Lindleys don't have, disappointment. The fact there hasn't been a handsome prince or princess in your life that with a true love's kiss has woken you up from an eternal sleep, right? Or there's no Anna that continually swoops in to rescue you at the expense of their own life. And so our hopes continually get dashed and our dreams broken. And so we end up masking and repressing this childlike desire that we have for joy. I was listening to a Tim Keller to Tim Keller speak on this topic, and he found an article in the New York Times that spoke to this dilemma. The author um, of this article suggested that, that the problem with happiness is happiness itself. The author writes, happiness is like beauty. Part of its glory lies in its transience. It is deep, but often brief. She goes on to say to hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall and the beloved ones in our lives die. No amount of mockery, no amount of fashionable scowling, meaning no amount of cynicism in a person will keep any of us from knowing and savoring the pleasure of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever forever. Guys, this is the dilemma. It doesn't matter how grumpy of a person you are or how much you roll your eyes at a happily ever after, no person can resist the sun on their face in the spring after a dark, cold winter. But the dilemma is that we know the sun won't stay out forever. And so we just have to get used to disappointment. We live with this tension. We want the happily ever after, but even with a glimmer of hope, we still know that we're going to experience suffering and disappointment. The joy and happiness is fleeting. So some of us just give up and become unhappy, joyless, and what I call curmudgeon Christians. And so what do we do? Do we just give up because the inevitable suffering we're going to face? Or do we embrace this inner child blindly, and naively ignoring the pain around us. In our text this morning, Paul is going to argue that we do neither. Scripture certainly doesn't suggest that we give up when we experience suffering, but it also doesn't insult your intelligence and your experiences, pretending that you're just a three-year-old who hasn't experienced real disappointment and real pain. And so how do we get to a place of believing that one day the sun will stay out and forever warm our faces, that one day we won't experience disappointment? How do we find that kind of joy? How do we find that kind of hope? Paul is going to argue in Romans 5 that being justified actually leads us to the most extraordinary joy now and hope in a happily ever after. And so let's get at it. Um, You can follow along in your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans 5, starting in verse 1 through uh, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, we want you to to take one home with you to have and to read. Uh, You can find that out on the welcome desk right outside the auditorium, please, and take that and consider it a gift from us. Um, In the meantime, the words are going to be on the screen behind me. So here we go. Starting verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, uh, by faith, since we've been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So Paul begins with a therefore, or in other words, meaning the verses that follow are the result of the truths that he's laid out in this letter so far, okay? Um, And so, um, which is the idea that we have been justified by faith. Remember a few weeks ago, Trevor saying that justified, meaning that, that God seeing us as just if I'd never sinned. Right. And so Paul now reveals in this text this morning, the blessings that come from justification. The joy we experience right now because of it and the hope that we have in future glory, a happily ever after. Paul, uh, sorry, Romans also shifts here in chapter five with the style that Paul is writing. Paul goes from argumentation to now Adoration and praise. Three times in this text, he uses the word rejoice. He's suggesting that the result of justification in our lives um, is good news that comes with incredible blessings. Paul is saying, in light of all that we've seen, here are the realities that justification brings. And they're pretty awesome benefits. They're pretty awesome realities. So let's take a look at them. Um, I've got three points with a ton of subpoints, but I've tried to layer them all on the screen so that you won't get lost. And just try to follow along on the screen. If you take notes, um, hopefully you will have plenty of time to be able to write each of these subpoints down. But the first point is: past, present, and future blessings affirm our hope. All eleven of these verses are directed to a believer. For someone who has been justified, who has been declared righteous, who has been declared as just if I'd never sinned. In these first two verses, we get past, present, and future blessings because of this justification. So first, peace. Paul says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul uses the word peace, what does he mean? This is not the same thing as peace of God like we see in other places in Scripture. The peace of God is a calm and happy spirit in the midst of hard times. The peace of God is subjective. But peace with God means that the state of hostility between you and God is now over. Peace with God is objective. And it happens whether or not you actually feel peace at any given moment. Peace with God means that until salvation, there was a war going on between you and God. And here's what happens. When we disobey God, we're breaking His law. And when you break God's law, you're assuming the right or the authority to do so. You're saying that you're king, You're claiming kingship over yourself and over your world. But God claims kingship over the same things at the same time. And so whenever two parties claim absolute kingly control over something, there's a war. And because of this, you have committed treason against God. And there's a sentence, a debt on us. One that doesn't just disappear if we decided to just turn back to God. Peace with God is not something that you can achieve on your own. We can't just say, my bad, okay? You're king, I'm not. No, God is a God of justice. And justice demands for a debt to be paid. But for those who have placed their faith in Christ, on the cross, Christ has killed that hostility He has taken our place, taking on our debt, our penalty, and because of that, granting us forgiveness and right standing with God. Jesus Christ has won the war, abolished the hostility, and brought us peace with God. So peace with God is something that was established in the past, and it leads to a present blessing, access. In verse 2, Paul says that we have also obtained access through Him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace here refers to ongoing favor with God because of our relationship with Him through the finished work of Jesus. We now live in the realm of God's grace. Not only do we um, get into this relationship with God by grace, but we also live out this relationship in day-to-day life by grace. We never put grace behind us. Verse two says that we stand in it, we live in it. This has to lead us to praise and thanksgiving to God. We deserve judgment, but we got grace. And because of our new standing with God, we have a new access to God. We don't just have temporary access to the king. We live in the palace as the children of the king. He hears us. He loves us. The gospel gives you a new identity, one that gives you access into this grace. The Greek word here for access has the same sense of bringing near or moving toward. Full access that brings us in close. For fall break, this past year, my family and I went to Washington D.C. And uh, um, before we went, uh, there are some places that you have to get reservations for, and one of those places is the White House. But it wasn't as simple as going on and just clicking on a reserve your tickets to the White House, and you get an email with the, with the tickets. No, you gotta you gotta uh, contact your senator several months beforehand, and then are put in this like lottery system, and then if you are chosen. Um, Then you have to fill out this background check. And then finally, you get these tickets with all of these instructions. Um, What time to arrive, on what day. You don't really get a choice on when you're able to go. You just have to show up when they tell you to show up. Um, And then once you're there, oh, also, you can't take in bags. Or So we're tourists. All five of us wanting to like eat lunch in the afternoon, but you can't go in with anything. So you have to go in um, just with what you have in your pockets. And so once you're there, you have to go through all these. I think there were like three different security checks that we have to go through. But finally, after all of that, we had access to the White House. And then an almost single file line, we walked around the bottom floor of the White House and looked into a lot of the different historical rooms, but we could only look into the rooms because they were historic and they didn't want tourists messing them up. So they were all roped off, but we could look into all of these really cool historic rooms. And then finally we made our way all the way around to the front steps where we could take like our final family pictures. And so, yes, we went to the White House. We even walked around inside and looked at a distance into some of the rooms but we certainly didn't have full access. You know, we couldn't go into the Oval Office or hang out with the President in the Situation Room. Paul is saying that for those that are in Christ, not only does Jesus make us at peace with God, but He brings us in close, giving us full access to Him at all times. Trevor mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and it's honestly one of my favorite images of God. As judge, God declares us righteous. But then he steps down from behind the judge's bench. Then he puts his arm around us and he adopts us as his own into his family. We get to live with the king, having full access to him. I mean, sign me up for that, right? I want that kind of access. No matter what you're going through, God says to come on in close because in Christ, there's nothing hindering you from that kind of access to the creator of the universe. Because you have peace with God, you have access. But now let's look at the future blessing that we get with justification. This is where the celebration starts, okay? Paul is saying that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One of the blessings of being justified is enjoying the hope that we have in future glory. Question, are you a curmudgeon Christian? You know what I'm talking about? You've probably seen them on Facebook. Okay, Always mad at someone or something. Someone that's focused more on rights versus responsibilities. Are you that person? Paul is resetting our priorities in this section. He's reestablishing enjoyment and joy that believers have in God. Do you love Him? Do you rejoice in Him? Do you adore Him? Do people see that kind of joy radiating from you? Paul is excited because of what God has done for us in Christ, and we should join him in this gospel celebration. This should be a marker for every Christian, a person of great hope and great joy. We rejoice because our hope is an undeserved hope. We don't deserve to enjoy God's grace and God's glory, but through Christ, these blessings are ours. This is something that you've heard many times from this stage, but um, the word hope that we find in Scripture isn't wishful thinking, like I hope the Titans win the Super Bowl. That's wishful thinking. I mean, if they even made the playoffs, they even win another game the rest of the season. That would be wishful thinking at this point. But biblical hope isn't wishful thinking. No, the believer's hope is secured. Okay, it's guaranteed. Romans 8.30 says, for those God justified, He also glorified. Christian hope is not a hopeful wish. It is a hope Filled certainty. Certainty that one day Christ will return and make all things new, including us. No more sin. No more death. No more suffering. And we'll live with Him in this undescribable beauty and peace. A happily ever after that no human author could write. This hope should energize our lives. It should give us great joy. But... And all of these benefits, the dilemma that we established in the very beginning still remains. The sun will inevitably go back behind the clouds. If God's glory is so glorious, then why do I still experience suffering? Why do I still experience pain? What are we missing? When life is going great, we can enjoy these benefits. But when life is down, what difference does peace and access, and future glory make, Paul says it makes all the difference. He says that our suffering actually strengthens our hope. Verse 2 says that we rejoice in hope. And verse 3 continues in this celebration. Paul says that we also rejoice in our sufferings, our afflictions. Before we dive into this next point, I think it's really important to see what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say that we rejoice for more suffering. He instead is saying that we should rejoice in the midst of our suffering. There's no joy in the actual troubles themselves. Joy, no, there's, there's no joy um, in the pain of this world. God hates pain and suffering in this life, and so should we. Rather, a follower of Christ knows that suffering will have beneficial results. And we can rejoice in that. Paul is saying not only do we have these benefits and justification that that should bring us joy, but this joy remains even in our afflictions. In fact, it's in our afflictions that we can experience even more joy. One thing our culture does is that it trains us to expect a life without suffering. And if we do, for any reason, we should then expect the environment around us to change so that we won't have to suffer anymore. And that change should happen as quickly as possible. There's little to no expectation from the culture that suffering actually has the potential to form us into more resilient, better people. But this is what we see in verses 3-4. through God's priority is not to take away all of your problems. It's to make you more like Jesus. The Christian message is not come to Jesus and then all of your problems will be immediately solved. Rather, Paul's testimony is that these afflictions are making you more like Jesus. Instead of just grinding it out and waiting for suffering to end, we take the opportunity to look through the suffering to joys and the certainties that it brings. Do you get that? And we see these certainties and a chain reaction over the next few verses. Paul says that we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and then proven character produces hope. The first link in this hope chain is endurance or perseverance. See, perseverance is in short supply today. You don't like your spouse? You get a new one. You don't like your car? You get a new one. You decide that your church is asking too much of you? You get a new one. You decide that your friends are not the type of people that you want anymore? Then you just get new ones. Our culture teaches us Not how to persevere, but how to avoid perseverance altogether. And Paul says that suffering, when tied to Jesus, um, actually uh, doesn't um, lead to collapse or addiction or hopelessness, but actually leads us directly into persevering. Somehow Jesus has become so compelling to Paul that he thinks that staying in the game, persevering, is not only something that we have to put up with, but actually the key ingredient that leads to hope. Endurance provides the bridge from suffering to hope. And so the next link in this hope chain is proven character. This phrase means testedness. It's the the, the character that comes from having been through a challenging experience. It's, It's poise that comes from persevering through something. For example, a sports team that's new to the playoffs may play poorly because they've not been in that position before. But a tested team, a team that's weathered this storm before, has the proven character to weather the same storm. Again, I had to throw in like two football references because of all the princess talk in the beginning. So I hope you enjoy that. But, but notice how the, the, the first chain of perseverance leads to the second chain of proven character. Okay, The Greek word that Paul uses for character refers to metal that's been purged of all its impurities, like sterling silver. It points to the purity of something that comes after enduring the heat of suffering. Also, our, our character isn't static. A marble structure after it's been carved remains unchanged, but our character is continually being formed by these fires. And now we've come full circle. Paul says, "...proven character produces hope. We've already seen and talked about how hope being one of the blessings of justification, being declared righteous, and we should rejoice in that hope. But Paul is saying to rejoice in suffering as well because it will be the very thing that will make you even more hopeful. Whitney Nadu, let me borrow a book on this topic. And the premise of this, um, this entire book is that to be... To be human is to suffer. The author says, the question is not if we each suffer, it is rather to what degree are we aware of it and how are we in relationship with and responding to it. These questions reveal not only the story we believe we are living in, but the role that suffering plays in that narrative. Suffering While not God's ideal intention, is a necessary element in our becoming our truest, most beautiful, most heaven-ready selves. It is an unavoidable reality of life, one that God plainly does not deliver us from in the time frame we would like, if ever. Moreover, it is a reality that He seems just as plainly committed to using suffering, for reasons that are a great mystery to me, to transform us into who He wants us to become. However, it remains something that I most often choose to avoid if possible, instead of accepting it as having anything to do with becoming who I actually long to be. All of this is both very hard and very good news. Then the goal is to form a deeply embedded, durable hope, not only in the presence of our pain, but as a direct result of it. Do You get what he's saying there? It's the same thing that Paul is saying, that suffering leads to durable hope. And if I learn how to persevere, I'm going to become a person of character, a person of character who's been formed by the fires of trusting God in difficult circumstances, all that leads to radical, durable hope. And when this happens, then suffering cannot touch your joy. Because joy isn't ultimately found in comfort and health and wealth and so on. But your joy is found in a person. Guys, we see this in the Old Testament with Job. God doesn't explain our suffering. He uses it. We are the ones that want an explanation so that we can understand it and then control it and be in charge of it. Like I want to be the king over my life's circumstances. I want to be in charge rather than trusting God to be in charge. Um, And and by doing so, I avoid suffering at all costs. But it's in that suffering that God relentlessly comes close to you, not primarily uh, to to stop our suffering, but to bring deep relationship, deep hope. Paul is reminding us that no matter what our stories have been, no matter the depth of our traumas, or shame, or pain, no matter how impossible it seems to imagine a future without suffering, that hope is waiting to be formed in us. Suffering strengthens our hope. But in the next few verses, Paul talks about how God's love guarantees our hope. And so we've gone through suffering. Okay, the sun is peeking out from behind the clouds. Now the endurance and character and hope have been formed. But we've been here before, right? How can we know for sure that this hope leads us to a happily ever after? How do we know the clouds won't come back out and this time stay out forever for good? Paul says that we are guaranteed this hope because of God's demonstrated love for us through the death and the life of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse five, Paul is anticipating a question. How can you really know this hope of glory is guaranteed. How how can we know that it's true? Paul says that when you're justified, you come to understand that you are loved. Our afflictions don't say that you're not loved. The afflictions say that you're truly loved. And that's why you hope in the midst of it. That's how we know this hope won't disappoint. And then Paul tells us how we know that, God's love, that God loves us. First, it's displayed in Christ's death. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because it's in a historical fact that while we were still helpless, that Christ died for the sinner, for the ungodly. This is not some subjective experiential love, but one that's grounded in history. God didn't merely say that he loves sinners. He acted on their behalf by putting forward Christ in their place. And Jesus willingly gave himself up, paying the price that we're never going to understand. And He would leave heaven for earth, live a sinless life, be betrayed, be tortured, and He would endure the Father's wrath in our place of those who deserved it instead. That's the cost of our salvation. The act of true love. It's the better version of Anna giving her life to save Elsa or Mufasa, uh, sacrificing his life to save Simba. Genuine Sacrificial love. Christ's death was the ultimate sacrifice. And again, on top of all of this, he showed his love in spite of our unworthiness of it. Watch what he's saying here. We were unable to save ourselves. We were helpless, without strength. When at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly not only were we ungodly but verse 8 says that we were sinners and then verses 9 and 10 goes further and reminds us that we were enemies guys God's love for us doesn't make any sense it says that Christ didn't die for a good person or you know maybe someone you would you possibly would take a bullet for like a national hero or maybe a loved one but what about for an enemy guys we are the enemy That Christ died for. And because of that, we are infinitely better off than we deserve. Love is displayed in Christ's death, but it's also displayed in the life of Christ. Through his resurrected life, we are saved today, tomorrow, and forever. Paul says, how much more? Meaning, if God has already done the difficult thing, we can trust him to do the comparatively easier thing. If Jesus stayed on the cross and saved us when we were enemies with God, then how much more will He keep us saved now that we are family? If He was able to save us when we were hostile at war with Him, would He fail us now that we're at peace with Him? Further, if Jesus achieved our salvation when He was dead, how much more will He keep us saved now that He's alive? Romans 8.32 puts it like this. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? The God who brought us into faith will keep us going in our faith. This is God's promise to us. And then Paul closes this section in verse 11, just like hitting the apex of his celebration Paul has given us a ton of reasons to rejoice. It's like been building and building and building and building. And then you notice what it says in verse nine, much more than, and then verse 10, how much more? And in verse 11, not only that. See, Paul, he's worked up here. He's excited. He says, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And Paul says, and we rejoice in that. Believers don't look at God as some means to an end. We see Him as glorious. We see Him as beautiful. And we should respond to God and this reconciliation that He's made with us with joy because this is our story. We rejoice because we know how the story ends. See, every great story Needs a great ending. Needs a happily ever after. How would you feel if the last petal fell in Beauty and the Beast and then the credits just rolled? Or, or Anna freezes Elsa after saving her, but then stays frozen forever. Okay, then you wouldn't get Frozen 2 then you wouldn't get Frozen 3, which was announced. And you guys may not have known this, but Frozen 4 was just announced this week. So Frozen 4 doesn't happen the end of the story is what makes a story worth telling. Because we were created in God's image, the human heart, the human heart demands something different, something beautiful, an ending that will redeem everything that came before it. Without it, we just have pointless, unredeemed pain. If our story just ends in death, then good doesn't overcome Evil, justice doesn't win, and then beauty and love doesn't reign. All the great stories, including our own stories in our own life, have this in common. They all have wired in them a sense of of longing for an ending that makes sense of the suffering of this life. There has to be a hopeful ending. My hope is that for some of you, this message will be an encouraging reminder um, of how your story ends. And that will make you rejoice in the hope that you have in the finished work of Christ. Yes, that Christ died, but He didn't stay in the tomb. He resurrected, securing our happily ever after. But for others, even though your heart still yearns for this, right? you may not be so sure how your story ends because you haven't placed your faith in Christ. Please don't leave here today without talking to someone. You can come and talk to me, one of the elders, maybe a friend or family member that you've come with. There's a card in your seat that you can scan and tell us. If you have any questions or if you want to tell us what you want to do today, you can do that. We want you to know that in Jesus Christ, you can find the reality to which all of the great stories throughout history points. Jesus is the great prince that came along and woke you up from a great sleep. He is the beauty that came along and turned the beast in all of us into beauty. He's the hero that laid down his life for our sake. He is the happily ever after where we find everlasting hope and joy. And for all of us, as we know more deeply what we have and who we are, and where we stand, simply because we've been justified by faith, we will find ourselves rejoicing in the unshakable hope of being known and being loved by God. Pray with me. God, we, we celebrate you. We praise you. We thank you for the cross and the hope we have in future glory. We praise you that through Christ we have reconciliation, that we have peace We have hope. We have joy. God, I pray that we would demonstrate that joy and hope for those around us. I pray because of the redemption we have and the cross, that we would be a joyful people. For those here this morning that can't quite see the joy through life's pain, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. That you would use their suffering in a way that, that gives them hope. And then for those that, that don't know how their story ends, that you can help them know a happily ever after if they allow you to be king over their lives. God, we thank you. We praise you. God, let us enjoy you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.